0: Welcome to the Global Council podcast,
1: where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation
2: from around the world.
0: Good morning, and thank you everyone for taking time to join us today for our discussion on doing things differently in the UK and the EU. Today, looking at energy policy. My name is Tom White. I'm one of the directors of Global Council responsible for our Brussels office and also for our advisory services on highly regulated sectors. I'm joined today by my colleague Edmund Gilda Bocabella, our advisor on energy and climate change, normally in our Brussels office, but today speaking to us from Berlin, as well as my colleague House and smith senior associate in our UK practice um, with a long experience of working on uh, UK policy and politics um, from our London office. Um, What we were going to do today over the next 45 minutes is look at a subject area of energy policy, which, um, to be honest, has never been more interesting. Um, We have huge questions facing politicians and policymakers about how to um, meet really ambitious targets for decarbonizing power generation as well as the wider economy where energy of course plays a crucial role. There is talk of revolutionary new technologies in areas such as hydrogen, carbon capture and storage Um, and at the same time we have a greater awareness of some of our vulnerabilities from our international interdependence for energy. Um, Overlaid across all of that for our discussion today is also the reality that the UK is now fully outside the EU's regulatory ambit for questions of energy policy. And that's going to be the focus of what we look at today. Um, we're going to be looking at how the UK might do things differently in areas such as accelerating the deployment of renewable energy. We will look at some of the regulations and ways in which decarbonization will be incentivized. We'll also look at some of the fiscal tools that are available on both the UK side and in the EU, in part following the um, new consensus about government activism after the pandemic. Um, So quite a lot to cram into our 45 minutes. I'm going to start the discussion today looking at the question of renewables, where we've obviously seen transformative increases in deployment and decreases in price. Um, It's also an area where To be honest, even when I worked in the UK government, there was always a bit of divergence in the UK's approach, partly flowing from its natural resources, um, which were previously North Sea oil and gas, and more latterly uh, offshore wind power, but also the difference in the economic needs with a a smaller industrial sector and a greater focus on on household consumers. Um, But perhaps, Admina Gilda, I could could start with you and think about the the EU27 side of of the equation. Um, When you look at um, the ways in which renewables are looking to be increased, accelerated, what do you see as the main objectives and and challenges on the on the EU side?
2: Well, the main challenge is essentially, we've, and and this is a problem, an issue not just for the EU but also for the UK. It's a shared issue of you set goals to significantly scale up and increase the amount of renewables that you have, especially in, in the offshore space, uh, but you now need to start uh, implementing those sorts of projects. So you need those projects that are to come on online. They need, to be, they need to be approved. They need to be fast-tracked. You need to already have a very good idea about the sorts of locations where you want those projects to go. You need to have an idea about the grid capacity, which will support those projects. And that's really challenging because it's... It, In an ideal world, that's a process that you would take, you know, you would have six years of proper assessment, also your normal sorts of environmental impact assessment, those sorts of things. You you have to fast track that now. We we have really significant emissions reductions targets on both sides in the UK in particular, but also in the EU. Um, And to be able to meet these targets, you need to be fast tracking projects, getting them online as quickly as possible, reducing the amounts of of tape, but on the same side, you you're on the, in the same light, you also need to balance out that you don't want to be rushing into projects um, that, that, that might not be suitable. You, you obviously don't want to, you want to minimise the amount of damage that you have to local environments um, and to local communities and you want to maximise uh, the sorts of economic benefits and, and, and benefits for, for wider society when you're making these decisions. Making them quickly, though, isn't isn't the most effective way to to kind of tick all of those boxes.
0: And, and I thought the the sense of urgency was something that really came across in the event we held a couple of months ago with Executive Vice President Timmermans, um, and it's clearly woven through most of his uh, public speeches as well as those of Kadri Simpson. But when you look at that challenge in the EU, you know, how much can really be done at the EU level and how much do we need to focus on on the member states themselves and how they operate within the frameworks that are set?
2: Yeah, exactly, and this is this is the challenge. The, uh, the, mem- the EU can set their uh, their targets and their goals. Their offshore renewable energy strategy has 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 really great renewable energy targets, both for the in the short term, but also in the long term. Um, the real key thing here, though, is making sure that member states can implement uh, and have the sorts of project pipelines that will get us to reaching those targets. We've seen a huge amount of technology that is being uh, that, that that on the board for areas like Um, like the Baltic Sea, uh, where you have, you've got some some really interesting uh, joint ventures which are happening. You have a lot of really great European champions when it comes to the renewable sector in particular. Um, And they're also working across the channel with the UK as well. A lot of the names that we see on projects, we're seeing the the same sorts of people who are investing in projects in the EU, in the UK, certainly looking at getting uh, getting these projects off the board but they still require that that the support on the ground. Um, you still need to be able to meet all of the uh, domestic and member state uh, requirements when it comes to things like planning permits and all of the things that are really integral that still have to be managed at a member state level. So you can, in some ways, uh, you, you can try and to accelerate it as much as you want at the EU level, and I think certainly the rhetoric is there, and and we've seen we've seen strategies. We don't necessarily have the same sort of um, policy push that we don't have policy on the books. We don't have uh, we don't have drafts to be pouring over yet. Um, so if we wanted to, if we want the EU regulation to change, then we need to start seeing some of those uh, some of those proposals in front of us. Uh, but certainly, when you're looking at the sorts of projects where they're happening, the opportunity is there. Um, but we just need to make sure that that the urgency uh, that we have at the EU level is also is also felt at the local level as well.
0: Absolutely, I think that's an interesting point to look at, at the UK which obviously now has been able to um focus very much on on what it can do it, it no longer has to worry about the interplay between national and and supranational to the same extent so I mean Lila would, would you say that this ambition is, is 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 the same in in the UK or, or how is it different?
1: Sure. So I think if we're talking about the UK um and about both kind of green technologies and renewables the government's kind of overt priorities are CCUS, hydrogen, onshore wind, which is kind of a continuing priority, as you mentioned, kind of has been been a government priority for a while. Um, But all of these are kind of chosen because there are clear opportunities for green jobs and CCUS and hydrogen in particular offer possibility of a kind of neater transition for North Sea oil and gas. Um, And in terms of appetite, I think the government gets that there's political capital to be gained here Um, if the UK expands its renewable capacity technologies and infrastructure there are kind of political wins both on a diplomatic stage and at a domestic level Um, and I think this was kind of really deliberate in Boris Johnson's 10-point plan in how it was positioned and I think we have to remember particularly with that that document it came at a point where there'd been quite limited bandwidth for anything other than COVID. So this was a kind of real marker in the ground. And they wanted to set out a strategy rather than a policy document to show both how renewables and how the green agenda was gonna fit in with their domestic priorities around leveling up, but also their wider ambitions for global Britain post-Brexit. So I think we've kind of seen similar positioning on the UK side, but with slightly different priorities. I think what is clear is there's still the gap in terms of The actual regulation and the funding models um which kind of equally in a similar way to the EU possibly haven't kind of been forthcoming I think some of that is Covid and some of that is bandwidth and some of that is kind of getting used to um sort of reprioritizing um the domestic agenda again but I also think some of that is is perhaps perhaps a lack of kind of joined up thinking at at UK government level kind of between departments.
0: Yeah of course I I suppose actually you're mentioning of the um difference between the the UK wide policy and of course there are devolved administrations which which is good qualifier to my point before about the UK now having complete control. Um, I mean certainly the political calculation is clear that you know if you can find a win-win that is um, finding new industries in potentially in in former industrialized areas um, if you are uh, demonstrating global leadership and sort of undermining some of the accusations that have been placed at the UK, that in Brexit, it is, you know, turning away from the world, you can see the political calculation is very clear. Um, For many of our clients, and I'm assuming also people on this call, um, we're also concerned about what the the practical barriers might be to actually delivering on that vision. And you mentioned funding, and you mentioned regulation. Um, What what would you see as the most significant hurdles to to realising the ambitions?
1: Yeah, I think it's funding, but it's particularly kind of funding models. So it's Okay, if we want to attract private sector investment, kind of what's the win-win? Obviously, we've seen how successful contracts for difference were in the um, offshore wind sector, but kind of is there an opportunity to do something similar on hydrogen? And I think that that's definitely in consideration. But ultimately, the government's kind of scheduling those funding models to be consulted on over summer. You're kind of letting a timetable drift quite a lot, um, kind of in advance of already having set some quite, Um, sort of punchy targets, um, both for 2050 but also for 2035, Um, and I think that's kind of a key barrier. I think there are areas where progress has been made definitely, so you kind of got Bayes about to kind of consult on the first set of carbon cluster projects, which was obviously kind of one of the key um, areas where they're kind of taking forward industrial decarbonisation, and you also have had the energy white paper which kind of put some flesh on the bones in terms of specific priorities and how these might be integrated but the government needs to show kind of sustained interest and follow this through with funding models to show that there's a kind of pathway to net zero and the UK being a a world leader in this Um, and and I think the thing that's going to be instructive is kind of where have they been successful before so obviously offshore wind is the clear example of that but are there kind of other areas maybe outside of kind of energy policy where they can look to where they're kind of incentivized transition um in the private
0: sector so we're looking at a a mixture of um more directional um infrastructure deployment as well as looking at you know the success of previous market mechanisms and and you mentioned contracts for difference i mean maybe if we come to one of the biggest market mechanisms in in the world which is the the use of the eu's emissions trading scheme um, maybe admiral Gilda we we could come back to you and and look at how, how is the um ets Um, likely to be reformed and and how does what's being discussed in Europe measure up against those ambitious targets that we, we talked about before?
2: yeah well the ETS I mean it's it's extremely interesting because there's there's an ETS in the EU there will be an ETS in the UK that we already know the that the the legislative structure is already there both the UK and the and the EU have um a net zero 2050 targets and the the ETS will be a really important tool to be able to get there today for the first time ever the EU ETS hit more than 50 euros a ton which was the sort of number um, of carbon dioxide pricing that we could only dream of it's it will be extremely important to be able to help the EU achieve its own targets. So we have the 55% emissions reduction target by 2030, which was agreed to. We have energy efficiency targets, which the um, of of 32.5% for 2030, which the carbon price will help feed into. We have offshore renewable energy targets at the EU level. It's it's to get 60 gigawatts of offshore capacity, um, which will explode to 300 gigawatts of offshore capacity by 2050. We've got really clear green hydrogen targets of 40 gigawatts um, by 2040, and, and even having six gigawatts of, of green hydrogen capacity by 2024. Um, we've got different member states, even, even, hyd- even when it comes to hydrogen, for example, Scotland has its own hydrogen strategy uh, w- with a clear hydrogen capacity goals. Um, the EU wants to be able to produce more than more than a million tons of of hydrogen by 2024 and then 10 million by 2030. The reason why the ETS in both countries is really key is putting a price on carbon is driving these technologies, the offshore, the energy efficiency, the green hydrogen. It's increasing the economic uh, support for for these sorts of projects. All of a sudden, if carbon is that expensive, you're then going to start looking at other options. And when you're investing in other options, whether it be energy efficiency, whether it be increasing your renewable capacity, or whether it be using green hydrogen, then you're going, then the price of those new technologies will start to drop. We already know that the cheapest way to produce an electron now on the planet is through photovoltaic solar power. Um, What we will see is that the the economies of scale, which will grow around these other technologies, will make these pri- that will make these technologies more accessible. And and the way to kind of make that even faster is to ensure that old technologies which emit a lot are priced based on their emissions. And that's something that that both the EU and the UK have to be able to do kind of in gusto together.
0: So some some very big numbers in the in the future, and a lot of um, I, I get a strong sense of opportunity. But if we look at the actual decisions that have been taken so far um, between the UK and the EU, the one that stands out most clearly to me is the UK's um, decision not to try and pursue a linking of that of that ETS scheme. Um, I mean, so so putting to one side all of the positive politics around uh, the energy transition, um, doesn't this really undermine ambitions on both sides to really use the carbon price to drive change in the market?
2: Yeah, I think I think the you we I think certainly twelve months ago we thought that a linked ETS was a given. We thought that by this stage we would have a linked ETS and that you'd be able to you'd certainly be able to build on 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 kind of carbon trading between the two countries. I don't think the UK's approach, and of course, um I'd love to hear Lila's point of view on this, I don't think the UK is actively not pursuing it, it's just not being prioritized, and that is detrimental to business because it leaves a huge amount of kind of confusion on the side of business. Um, there's there is an entire financial market that's developing around uh, around generating carbon credits, whether it's on a voluntary scheme or whether it's on, on in a compliance scheme. But you're you're essentially missing a year of opportunity that you didn't have to miss. Um, what, what, what do you, I'd love to hear, Lila's take. Yeah, no,
1: I, I, I agree. I mean, I think there were two kind of clear factors sort of working against both the UK and the EU, but particularly the UK um, on getting towards a linked to ETS. The first was kind of the window to get an agreement on this once the Brexit deal had been done in advance of the first auction was quite small. And I think there's just a kind of there's a reality to that. And secondly, I think the problem was kind of when this was being initially discussed as part of the negotiations, there was a kind of wider internal conversation within the UK government about carbon pricing um and specifically like the treasury were interested in a carbon tax and bays were interested in a kind of linked ets or something around that so i think that was playing out rather than perhaps the kind of necessary consideration between kind of the uk and the eu around whether whether this was a real possibility and whether this was what they were aiming for immediately after the brexit deal had been done um you know i think obviously don't need to say that brexit was a kind of high stakes game for the for the UK um, and specifically for this UK government and I don't think they necessarily joined the dots on this at an early stage um, and I think this is this is possibly a sort of broader issue for the government while net zero is a clear ambition they don't necessarily always have the central coordination behind it because you don't have a department for climate change you have bays basically leading this it's not always clear that bays are necessarily feeding into David Frost's team in the cabinet office who are negotiating um, with the EU side. I'm sure there were people in number 10 thinking about these issues and kind of trying to join up these dots. But I think in a kind of short timescale, it's perhaps not surprising um, that sort of a specific push was made um, for this. And and I think now the UK is kind of moving to frame their standalone ETS as a kind of mechanism for them to be more ambitious and kind of, get them into a kind of wider conversation about carbon pricing and I think I'd be kind of interested in a minute, think thoughts on this but there's a kind of opportunity potentially for the UK to expand the scope of their standalone ETS um, to, to, to show, a, show a greater level of ambition on this. The problem with that is for the sector there's a kind of real lack of alignment between the two ETSs if that was to happen.
0: Um, I, th- I think we, we definitely want to come back to this this question of ETS linkage, and, and in particular whether whether COP might, might might create an additional bit of momentum around that. Um, I, I did want to um, pick up on one of the. Point, points that we mentioned earlier, which was around the UK having, in some ways, set um, even more ambitious targets than than have been set in the in the EU for for carbon emissions reductions. Um, certainly, sort of the timeline for getting to net zero, as well as some of the interim milestones. But that slightly pushes up against some of the politics in the UK in recent years about energy bills and about the the burdens on the consumer. Um, and I just wondered, as as the UK is also looking at having greater autonomy over its um, VAT, over its consumer regulations, um, do, we, do, do we think we'll see any changes on, on that side? Will we look at um, ways to reduce prices and ease, ease burdens on households? And if so, how do, how does that uh, compare with the, the, the climate change ambitions?
1: Yeah, so I think this is a really interesting question because kind of VAT is definitely one way of um, kind of reducing um, the cost of electricity. Um, It remains kind of a wider odd feature of the UK energy pricing model that electricity has more policy costs heaped on it than gas. And I think they need to kind of fix that if they want people to expand their use of heat pumps. And also if we continue to, to sort of produce more renewable electricity so yes that on electricity should should be considered um but i think it's not perhaps the same conversation we were having in sort of 2016 when some of these debates around where we could reduce vat to to incentivize different kinds of consumption were, were happening i think the government is beginning to consider the wider financial incentives and disincentives around Um, around energy. Um, So so I think another mechanism, yes, would be to kind of even out policy costs on on electricity versus gas. That's not to say that kind of that isn't a powerful tool, and in fact it would be kind of interesting to see whether the government looks at that on the retrofitting of individuals' homes um, for energy efficiency measures in the kind of forthcoming heating and building strategy, because they kind of haven't up till now being able to find kind of clear ways to incentivize take-up of energy efficiency measures. The recent Green Homes Grant was kind of another example of this not, not particularly being very successful. So I think there's, there's, there's definitely opportunities and I don't think it's always the case that these weren't things that they could have considered inside the EU, clearly, but but there's kind of new way of thinking about these things which I think is quite helpful, as you say, if the UK is kind of intent on setting such ambitious targets you know rightly but 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 kind of how they actually think about delivering this
0: you mentioned about new ways of thinking around um, you know looking even at the demand side and looking at buildings and I mean there's also uh, a lot of discussion in the UK about electrification of, of vehicles and um, you know increasing demand for for, for, for different types of um, power Um I mean, we've also seen I'm mean, on the EU side, some um, very creative thinking over the last year. You, you mentioned about the recovery funds being uh, deployed to green energy. And we've we've looked in the past um, and some of our work at what the EU is, is currently focusing on around buildings and, and, and the approach to improving energy efficiency. I mean, what, what, what are you looking at on the on the demand side in the EU? Where, where do we see sort of policy innovation developing there?
2: Yeah, there's a lot, I mean, there's, there's a huge amount of policy that, that That's that's going to be uh, that's forthcoming, especially with the Fit for 55 review on the EU side. What's really interesting is the challenges that the UK have are are very very similar to the challenges that the EU have. But the UK now has the opportunity, or or, or now has to essentially go at these go at these alone. Um, Heating is an is is quite an interesting one, especially when you're looking at the energy efficiency and energy performance of buildings. It's a problem that's shared both within the UK and the EU we have similar climates in the in the UK as we do in the EU we have similar um, uh, life expectancy of our building stocks our building stock normally lasts for about 150 years Um, and for a lot of buildings in both the UK and the EU they haven't been built with energy efficiency as like their primary principle so you're now looking at a very very large retrofit job Um, and what does that look like you know should we be delivering should we be delivering heat pumps to every to every household is is that one way of doing it how do we look at um, improving the energy efficiency of of buildings we've seen massive programs already like in France you had the Relance France program what's been interesting on the UK side is uh, the the and the kind of the, the push has been a little bit less in the EU in particular. Lots of member states have seen um, things like the renovation wave, things like uh, getting people back to work. I think last year I said the word "shovel ready" projects about 150 times um, a, a week because what what was really what people were looking for were the sorts of projects that you could deploy immediately. And so when you're looking at recovery, those are the sorts of projects um, that that are that that, that are Kind of labour intensive where you're getting people out you know working they're challenges that both the EU and and the UK face again it's a mixture between how are you going to direct public money whether into these sorts of projects how are you going to make sure that these projects um, that, that, that these projects are disseminated appropriately you have some issues in the UK where uh, energy efficiency work is done by voucher which then creates a bit of a bottlehead rather than being able to claim it as, as, a, as a tax break, which you can see in other uh, in other jurisdictions like in Germany. So it's really important to make sure when you're looking at these programs, that they're accessible, uh, that they're understandable uh, and that they don't create another layer of, of bureaucracy so that you're able to keep the cogs turning effectively.
0: I mean, that is one of the Arguments that the UK was was deploying to be able to be more nimble and more um, uh, quick quick quick-footed in um, in taking opportunities. Um, I mean, if if we were to maybe think about um, what incentives the UK is deploying, um, Lila, I, I don't think there is the same sort of fiscal stimulus planned in the UK, but there has been some. Um, uh, there have been some quite eye-catching announcements about um, investment incentives in the in the tax system. Would you maybe tell us a bit about how those could play out for, for energy consumption?
1: Yeah, sure. So, so I think the kind of simple answer is that basically you haven't seen the um, kind of investment incentives um, that have been put in place in the UK, like the super deduction, having the same type of green strings attached as some of the, U- uh, the EU projects. Um, And we've actually seen funding for green um, home improvements withdrawn, although that's kind of been that's been compensated for by kind of a focus on public sector building um, improvements. Um, I think this is a problem because there's clearly, as the EU's recognised, an opportunity um, to think about how you direct um, not just public public money but private money too. Um, uh, But I think it's also a mistake to think that no one's thinking about this. I think ultimately what has happened so far is the Treasury has been fixated on economic recovery and the economic support measures that have been in place throughout COVID, um, kind of at the expense of everything else. I think they missed a bit of an opportunity with the super deduction, but it's not quite true to say that no one's kind of thinking about this um the treasury's got their kind of net zero review coming up um which they published a sort of interim statement for um a couple of months ago but it's specifically looking at how you balance costs and benefits and look at fiscal tools on your pathway to net zero Um, and i think that's kind of forcing the treasury and government more widely to kind of confront and consider these issues you've also got the likelihood of another Um, UK fiscal event um, just just possibly a couple of months before COP which I think is going to kind of focus minds on how better to use these kind of um, fiscal levers Um, and I think fundamentally they sort of know that if if you don't start sort of putting in place um, clear incentives and and fundamentally funding you'll get a credibility gap emerging um, in advance of COP which is obviously kind of a, a huge moment for the UK government.
0: Well, I, th- I think we've explored quite a number of areas where the UK and the EU will diverge, not not even by, by design, but just through the realities of how they're going to be developing and consulting on and implementing policies. Um, we've got a few questions from the audience to come back to, uh, most of which relate to actually the, the global picture. Um, but before we do, could I maybe just ask a quick question of both of you, which is that based on your experience of, of working in both jurisdictions, you know, how realistic do you think it is that all of these high level targets will actually be delivered and implemented? Um, I I know from my own experience setting uh, climate change and energy targets for 2020 that performance on delivering them was sometimes more by luck than judgment uh, and was often quite patchy, both in the UK, but also among some EU member states, you know, do, do you think this time we should take the political targets at their word?
1: So just just beginning with the UK, I kind of my concern isn't I think it, it depends on which sector you're looking at. I think ultimately in industrial decarbonisation, I think the UK has got kind of good intentions and, and the right policy to kind of sit behind it. I think the focus on kind of um, carbon, carbon um, capture and storage is right. And I think they are kind of that's the area where they are directing funds. My concern would be on heating and buildings. Um, where the UK hasn't really wrestled with the dilemma of whether you're going to rely on hydrogen or heat pumps and specifically wrestled with the kind of necessity of quite disruptive change to consumers' homes, um, which is going to be difficult and you're going to have to really sell the benefits of this to consumers. And I just don't think we're anywhere near kind of on that path. And I think it's, it's important to remember that a lot of the emissions reduction that has come before has not been very visible. Um, to consumers or businesses, um, partly, yeah, partly because it's mainly been in the power sector and also because the, U- the UK government has directed a lot of funds towards it, um, rather than kind of relying on, on, on the private sector and also relying on individuals making active choices.
2: Yeah, I think, I think on the EU side, I mean, the advantage that the UK has is that UK, the UK can target policies to address the areas that it is lagging on emissions reductions. The disadvantage, of course, is they can't rely on Sweden and Denmark to pull them across the line collectively, which is what kind of what has been happening at the EU level. The EU has been able to reach all of its emissions reductions targets. The only one that it's that it's failed and really struggled with is, is energy efficiency, but that's because they've been doing it collectively. Certainly there are number of member states that fall below the the line and that haven't been able to individually meet the sorts of targets and we saw that was a key issue when we were looking at the European climate law that had you know a a huge amount of trilogues for a a piece of legislation that in principle was meant to be you know relatively agreed on. The sticking point at the end was whether or not we were going to have a collective Net zero, um, a net fifty-five percent emissions reductions target, or a gross fifty-five percent emissions reductions target, and and we ended up settling on the lesser. The the big issue for the EU is that the EU has to regulate for every sector. Um, the EU has to regulate in in particular, transport emissions are an area for the EU where emissions increase. However, transport emissions are nowhere near as much as a priority as Lila points out for the UK. heating and the performance of buildings is and and you know as Lila pointed out as well um, it's disruptive it's not just we're not just talking about you know are we ripping out your gas heater and we're putting in heat pumps you also have to you know have a full insulation program you have to replace a huge amount of 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 the of windows and doors that that's really that's expensive um, and and people it it will annoy a lot of people it's not going to be people aren't aren't going to be as as happy about it Um, especially if you've you know if you're living in a home and you get a a council note that says by the way your house is class d that will that will annoy a whole lot of people the the big difference though between the that the, the uk has a a really progressive emissions reductions target. And I've said this before uh, to colleagues, Um, this is one of the, you know, if there are positives from Brexit in particular, no one would have thought when Brexit came out that in fact, one of the results would be the UK would have a far more ambitious emissions reductions target than the EU. And, And let's be honest, that's actually a really, really good thing the UK being able to deliver that, that 78% emissions reductions target based on their 1990 um, base level year by 2035, that means that they need to start implementing. They have, they, they, they've pushed it out beyond 2030, probably because they know they won't quite make it, but that means the sorts of technologies that we're talking about that will get them there, they need to be going into place within the next two years.
0: Yeah, so we can all look forward to breathing that London air in 2035. Um, it will be fresh. <laughs> uh, I'd like to come to some of the questions that we've had. I'll, I'll need to group them together, but they they all relate to the the sort of global picture. Um, and the first one is the the old chestnut of of carbon leakage and um, a question of you know if if the UK and the EU are both moving faster and more ambitiously than the rest of the world how will they protect the competitiveness of their industries um given we were talking before about the ETS maybe Gilda, I'd come to you first and then and then to Lila.
2: Yeah, so the carbon border adjustment mechanism is is something that the European Union has been talking about since I think it was December when when it first got mentioned, December 2019. So we're now 18 months in. We have seen the draft agenda of the College of Commissioners, and it looks like that the details of the carbon border adjustment mechanism will be released on the 14th of July this year. Interestingly, and this is something that Laila and I talk about quite a lot when we're when we're doing our our compare and contrast, the UK has been really, really quiet on what they're going to do with whether or not they want to approach a a carbon border adjustment mechanism. I've jokingly said that they're kind of standing there, not shaking their head, not nodding, but slightly moving so that that they look really ambiguous. I think the EU is going to continue to pursue a carbon border adjustment mechanism. Um, I've said this before at the beginning, I thought the carbon border adjustment mechanism was really meant to be a warning shot for both China and, and the US. I think the metrics have changed significantly because you now have net zero commitments, mid-century net zero commitments, more or less from both of those countries. And and something like a carbon border adjustment mechanism will really look at uh, places like India, uh, where where they're still using quite emissions intensive um, industries that are genuinely competing with industries uh, in Europe and in the UK. That makes for an interesting quagmire um, because the original thought of the, uh, I don't I don't think uh, when when DT Jorgensen first spoke of the carbon border adjustment mechanism I had a if a savvy journalist had said, you know, are you targeting India, she would have said no, of course not. Um, but now that looks like what it is how the UK approaches that it is going to be interesting, especially because the UK has come out and quite strongly said that they want to p- pivot towards uh, the old relationships with the, that they've had in the in, in the in the Indo Pacific region um, and 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 how they use use a carbon border adjustment mechanism in those sorts of circumstances uh, creates a a lot more questions uh, I think than than answers.
1: I just say yeah I mean I I agree with everything Aminadjilda said I think the UK government really hasn't made their mind up yet on this I think um, that's what the debate over the Cumbrian coal mine um, showed in part Um, the UK doesn't have a good answer yet on whether it's better to import Less coal, but from China, or set up a coal mine that serves a local area and local businesses and provides employment. That then kind of goes to the goes to the, the secondary question, which you need to answer if you're going to kind of seriously think about a carbon border adjustment mechanism. I think the reason it's a it's a specific challenge is that the voter coalition that the Conservatives um, came to power on in 2019 um, is not going to accept that going green means that we should abandon jobs in the northeast or accept that there's going to be kind of particular dislocation um part of the conservatives appeal to them in their kind of slogan of leveling up was that they already feel that they've lost out from globalization um and i think it's an interesting um sort of dynamic in which to then play in that the carbon border adjustment mechanism i don't think there's kind of yet any sort of serious intent Behind it, kind of within um, the UK government, I think, like Emmanuel says, they'll watch from the sidelines. But you are getting conservative MPs who are interested in this as- in this issue, talking more about how you wrestle with the challenge of an ambitious energy transition that doesn't necessarily kind of impose more burden on businesses or kind of um, sort of deliver the death nail to the to the steel industry for example and I I think that's a it's a really important debate and and I don't think I don't think it will go away I think the UK government will just choose to kind of see how it plays out in the EU context and how particularly what Biden chooses to do on this.
0: Thanks. So if we look at maybe time for one one more question I'll I'll bring two together in cheating a little bit um one about um open strategic autonomy as the new EU economic doctrine and how that will play out for um, the energy sector. And we have a question about the role of Chinese investment in the energy sector, both in the EU and in the UK. Of course, it's, it's slightly different in that we have a number of EU member states signed up to the Belt and Road Initiative. Clearly, um, energy infrastructure plays a part in that. We have Chinese investment in energy assets particularly in in Portugal and in in southern Europe and at the same time in the in the nuclear sector in the UK I suppose I'd bring those together by just saying you know how will the politics of national security or European security play out in the energy sector um, over the coming years Um, maybe um, Lila given that we recently had a UK defence review I'll come to you first
1: yeah I I think this is a really important question and I think ultimately kind of particularly uk chinese involvement in uk nuclear is kind of the next battle for sino-skeptic mps in in the uk parliament um i think you know obviously i think hinkley point is possibly um sort of too far progressed for this to be challenged but i think we should be clear that that there's going to be a battle over kind of Chinese involvement in size well Um, and I I think the problem for the UK government is they don't necessarily yet have kind of the policies in place and the funding mechanisms um, in place around kind of nuclear and other other renewables to attract other kinds of private sector investment Um, but certainly you know the National Security Investment Bill which was passed um, into law last week will it will kind of um provide a screening mechanism for any chinese involvement um in 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 um in energy infrastructure and that's gonna that's potentially gonna present a problem both in making this a highly contentious area um and also um potentially for the uk government having to a- attract other forms of um investment that's that's likely not going to be dom- domestic so um yeah i think i think the uk government has created a
2: bit of a quagmire
1: for for itself there
0: and I'm going to build it on the on the EU side?
2: Yeah, on the EU side, the challenge—the challenge is not just within the EU member states that are signed up to the Belt and Road Initiative and the sorts of inward investment that that, that they've already received. E- the EU also has the additional challenge of of a lot of our neighbouring countries, countries like Serbia, Albania, um, and countries that are looking to to ascend to the EU that have to grapple with uh, Belt and Road initiatives and Belt and Road projects that don't necessarily meet uh, EU environmental standards, or or or, or um, let alone and the other issue, of course, of of national security and and, and having, exposing your critical infrastructure. Um, I think it's it's a serious challenge. The EU wants to keep China, um, the EU wants to clearly wants to use climate diplomacy as a way of, of, of keeping the door open with China. Xi Jinping had a meeting with with Merkel and Macron. Um, it's very few leaders are able to, to call what would be uh, the two most powerful uh, European leaders kind of into a call, albeit you know, we know that that Merkel will finish uh, in September this year, and we know that Macron is facing a, a presidential election. But that still means something. Um, it's, it's, it's. Uh, it, you can say a metaphor that you could use is the EU is going to have to tread lightly and carry a big stick. Uh, they're going to want to make sure that they don't damage their relationship with China, especially when it comes to energy to emissions. But in the same light, they don't want to overexpose their energy infrastructure uh, to to China to chinese investment because of because of the the absolutely crucial role that energy has in in keeping the the entire economy switched on
0: thank you i think that's a good note to and on quite a quite a challenge to the to the EU. Um, certainly, um, the European Parliament is often criticised as doing exactly the opposite of that Roosevelt maxim in um, shouting very loudly and and, and waving a peace shooter. But um, <laughs> that was a very interesting discussion. Thank you both, Lila and Admiral Gilda and thanks to everyone for joining. Um, if you have any follow up questions, uh, please do uh, contact us directly. Um, and um, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks very much.
1: For more insights, blogs and analysis, you can visit our website
2: www.global-council.com and subscribe to our mailing list. And you can follow us on Twitter at global underscore council.